Our New Testament reading today, continuing in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. The Apostle says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. As for you, be always sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again together. Father, we thank you for the Catholic faith. We thank you that we can uh, bind ourselves to it. We thank you that you bind ourselves to it, Lord, by your Holy Spirit in Christ. And we come now to sit at your feet, Lord Jesus, for you are the one Christ. And we know that we do not have many teachers, but we have one teacher who is the Christ. And so grant now, Lord, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. Grant that our hearts would be changed so that we might obey you and be part of your royal holy family, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, looking at 2 Timothy, and uh, I want to try and be a little briefer today, given that we just spent an hour in Athanasius's uh, Crete. Um, so I'll try to be a bit more brief than I have been hitherto. So looking at 2 Timothy 4, uh, I want to look at four, at four ideas um, that govern our text today. And the first of these has to do with Paul's charge. Paul's charge has to do explicitly with the parousia. Everything that Paul has to say now about the ministry of the church, he's defining what the church is to be as, a, as the locus of the exposited word and as um, uh, ministry and evangelism. Everything that he has to say, you'll notice, is in light of the Lord's coming. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Once again, I've noticed this before, Paul lives with the overshadowing reality of the Lord's second coming. It's always on his mind. And when he finally goes and tells Timothy what he ought to be doing, he, he says that in terms of the parousia of the Lord's second coming, the judgment. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Again, all of Paul's evangelism is based in this. Knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing the great day of the judgment seat of Christ, knowing this I persuade man. <laughs> he says, in, in, I was thinking uh, recently of uh, 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, there's this wonderful phrase, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 to 10. Just an example of how, how the parousia, the, the Lord's coming, is always on Paul's mind. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, when he inflicts vengeance 
on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. This reality of the Lord's coming is so present in Paul, and it ought to be so present in us. The Gospels, as Jesus preaching, is heavily weighted on his second coming. Live as those who are ready. It's how the New Testament ends. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Behold, I'm coming quickly. And I bring my reward with me. Behold, I come quickly. So live in light of my coming. And Paul, at the very end, this is the very end of his life now, as he's urging these things on Timothy, he says again, remember, Timothy, the Lord is coming again and live in light of that great day. The second thing I want you to note today is the uncompromising confrontational character of the gospel. The uncompromising confrontational character of the gospel. Verses 2 to 4. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why all these emphases on confrontation? These are confrontational words. Rebuke, reprove, exhort. Why all this? Well, Paul explains. Because the time is coming. You've already tasted it, Timothy in all the trouble that's going on in Ephesus, but more is coming. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Paul paints a picture here of culture that wants nothing to do with the gospel. It wants nothing to do with the teaching of the, of the church. People who would rather, far rather, just... Uh, devote their energies to pleasing their passions, their hungers, their appetites. The church never ever buckles beneath the pressure of these appetites. The church is never ever to act in cowardice towards a culture who vehemently wants nothing to do with what's proclaimed in all of its appetites in all of its passions. The church is never ever to do that. It rather is to go forward and to reprove and to rebuke that culture that is desiring these things. Now we struggle with this as 21st century Christians. We really do. And I see it in my own, you know, ministerial colleagues that, you know, why would we bother talking about these things if that's going to prevent prevent them from hearing the gospel. Let's just give them the gospel and we'll just leave all these things unsaid, all these tender issues. We won't, we won't reprove, we won't rebuke, we won't exhort, we won't correct. We'll just give them Jesus and we'll let the Lord handle all that stuff that they're, at, that they're uh, meddling with. That's not the pattern that Paul sets forth. Rather, the church goes right into the midst of the culture and it reproves and it exhorts, it confronts. We see this in Paul of the Areopagus, right? 
It's really interesting when Paul talks to the Athenians and he bridges, he bridges their culture, he uses their poets, and he says, up until the time of Christ, God was, God was uh, patient with your idolatry. He's patient with it. He let it happen. He talks about your ignorance. God allowed your ignorance to go on. But the moment of Christ changes everything. God now commands all men and women to repent. You must let go of your ignorant ways. You must let go of your foolishness and turn away from them. So Paul goes right into that Greek culture and he challenges their idolatry. And we see this time and again, right, in Paul? Remember Paul in Ephesus? Do you remember the riots? Paul evidently had gone into this great city where there was all this worship of Artemis. Artemis. This was the city of Artemis. The meteorite had fallen, and they had created a temple for Artemis. And Paul goes in there boldly, and he says, those gods that are made by hands, guess what? They're not gods. He challenges their thoughts. He challenges their devotion and their worship. He says, it's all wrong what you're doing. And a riot erupts. Those who are making their gods, the coppersmiths and the silversmiths, those who are making little idols, they get very angry because it's bad business. But Paul directly confronts what's going on. And you know what? Jesus does exactly the same. Try reading through the Gospels and see how often Jesus confronts those who aren't serving God in the right way. He calls a spade a spade. Remember the great, the seven woes in Matthew towards the Pharisees? Oh my goodness, you think John the Baptist was severe? Listen to Jesus, telling them all the things they're doing wrong. Who will keep you from the fires of hell? <laughs> he says, why? You're hypocrites. You're lawless. You preach all the doctrine, but you don't do it. You don't obey my Father. You don't love the weighty matters of the law. You're clean on the outside. Inside, you're like a tomb. Jesus confronts it directly. Brothers and sisters, the call of the church is to confront a society, to call it to repent. Only then can we say, now come to Jesus. Come to the Lord. And we preach the glory, uh, the, the glory of Christ. Um, I, I love this little uh, description. This is a, a book by um, uh, Hanley uh, Mool, Hanley C.G. Mool, Bishop of Durham. He wrote a number of, of lovely books. He was one of the great evangelical Anglicans in the 19th century. Um, and Mool has this lovely description of what the church is all about. Listen to this. The church must tend to make sin hateful, Holiness dear, and the Christ of Bethlehem and Calvary glorious. Isn't that a wonderful, simple, lucid description of the church. Sin hateful, holiness dear, and the Christ of Bethlehem and Calvary glorious. That's what the church does. And it can't just say, well, let's just make Christ glorious and not let the world see that sin is hateful to God. And holiness is dear to him. We're called to do both. Repentance towards God, faith in Jesus Christ. And let's not steer away from these things. And if you find me steering from these things, please come to me quickly. Secondly, uh, thirdly, I should say, um, and, and this is to kind of um, complete our, our talk this morning, Paul gives us four qualities 
uh, of Christ's workers. Four qualities of Christ's workers at the end here. This is a lovely, uh, simple, and uh, helpful description of what it means to be a worker for Christ. Number one, Paul says we're to be sober-minded. Now, obviously, that means we're not to get drunk, right? That's, that's the kind of the basic, the basic idea. We must not get drunk. Wine and beer are fine. Whiskey's fine. Bourbon's fine. We must not get drunk. It's not permitted to us. Noah did wrong. The great patriarch of the vineyards, he did wrong in getting drunk. It was a blemish on his character. Um, that's obvious. But it's, it's very, very difficult to follow this command to be sober-minded in an age of dissipation. Again, an age that is just drunk with pleasures. It is hedonistic. And I think, you know, a certain theologian in the South might be unhelpful in latching onto that phrase in the way that he's done. It is hedonistic, this, this rampant, wild pursuit of pleasure, just more and more pleasure. We're pleasure seekers. It's hard to be sober-minded in a culture like that. Hard to detach yourself from these things. I watched recently, I completed it as a, a, um, a series on the Unabomber. And uh, I don't want in any way to recommend uh, this manifesto uh, of Ted Kaczynski. But this series does make you think very profoundly, and I was shaken to the core. It got in my head in a certain way as to the way that North American society has become drunk with stuff, things, gadgets. And it's very difficult to be sober-minded. We need to be alert as Christians, careful, not given to pleasure. I've been reading, a, um, speaking of Handley Moore, I've been reading his biography of Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon, a number of, an another of the great uh, Anglican evangelicals. Simeon has become very quickly a hero of mine. Simeon would um, wake up, and this is not a recommendation to you, but he'd wake up 4 a.m. every morning and spend four hours in prayer and the Word to start his day. And he struggled with that decision. He struggled with getting up. Sometimes he'd be very, very tempted to stay in bed, to just drink in the pleasure of sleep, to be like that proverb, you know, like a door moves on its hinge, so the lazy man rests on his bed. He can't get off, right? The pro and he struggled with this. And so he said to himself, what I'm going to do to fix it Every time I sleep in, I'm going to give a guinea to my servant, give, give, a, give some money to my servant woman. Well, that worked for a while until one morning, so deceitful is the human heart, that he said to himself, she's a poor woman after all. And I think she could deserve that guinea today if I just sleep in. And he did that for a while until he was convicted of his compromise. And then he said to his soul, oh, soul fool that you are, I will throw the guinea into the river which was a terrible waste. But as he threw that guinea and he did it into the river, he recognized what time he was wasting for the service of God. He was being alert, watchful. The call of the gospel is to watch. Jesus says this in view of my second coming, be awake, watch. Watch yourself, watch your brothers and sisters, watch your church, watch. And don't give in to the opiates of this age. Just lie in your opium bed. In a daze. 
and forget the gospel. Be sober-minded. Secondly, Paul says we are to endure suffering. Now, the suffering here, there's all kinds of suffering that happens in the Christian life. Um, and in, in some ways, this encompasses everything. Jesus can make of all of our suffering his cross for us. Jesus can make of all of our suffering, and this is the wonderful alchemy of the Lord's work in our lives. He takes everything that's bitter, and he can use it for our sanctification. And so in one sense, we are to be patient with the Lord's corrections of us, his uh, chastening of us, his putting crosses on us. We're to accept these things. And it's a wonderful reminder when we're going through difficulty to remember that, that uh, you know, a man named Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry his cross. There, the, and Jesus' own words that you know, we are to pick up our cross and follow him. But here, especially Paul is speaking of the suffering that follows faithful living in the light of the gospel. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm just going to say this. I think we are on the cusp of an age. We've been living in this kind of uh, bubble for the last 50 or so years or more, maybe the last century. This comfortable bubble where you can live a gospel life and not be too bothered by it. I think it's about to change. And I think the kind of gospel living that does what Paul says to do, rebuke, reprove, exhort, challenge, confront, call out the idols, call out the, the godlessness, call out and say God is not willing to be patient with these things anymore, that these kinds of people and these kinds of people and these kinds of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. When we boldly proclaim these things in a, in a, a generation that's coming very quickly, we will, we will begin to suffer as we haven't suffered, I think, for, for quite a while. This isn't a prophecy. I just feel it in the air. I feel the, the, the what's going on in society right now. It is, um, it is lining itself up against the faithful proclamation of the gospel. And he wants us to get ready for that. And we should. It's, I think it's right around the corner, quite frankly. Um, endure suffering. It will come. Thirdly, do the work of an evangelist. Now, this is very interesting, isn't it? Paul seems to imply here that Timothy, who is not necessarily an evangelist per se, but a pastor and a teacher, is to do the work of an evangelist. Now, clearly in Scripture, there are some who are called to be evangelists. But all, some are called to be evangelists, and they do that with a particular gift. I know some like that, but all are called to do the work of an evangelist. That applies to each and to every one of us. This should ring on our ears every morning. We get up and we go about our day, do the work of an evangelist. That's up to you. That's on you. That word is to you. It's to the pastor as well as to the evangelist. It's to the layperson. Um, and there needs to be, in light of this, a sense of awareness and expectancy that God will arrange things for you in order to fulfill this, this command. Praying, Lord, open the door. Not to go around door by door handing out tracts. I think that's terribly wrong. I think what the Jehovah Witnesses do um, 
up on campus at UBC is the wrong way to do things. But there's a right way to go about and to expect the Lord to open up doors for us so that we can we can have an opportunity to speak the gospel. Just the other day, you know, it, it's, it's part of my habitual prayers to pray in this way. Oh God, as you open that door for Stephen, or, uh, not for Stephen, but for um, Philip, to speak to that Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, it's a perfect situation. Who's this lamb, right? It's just kind of like, speak to me of the gospel. We can pray in those ways. Just Lord, bring people across my path. Now, interestingly enough, on the one day I would pray the opposite. I was going to a store. I said to the Lord, I don't want to see anybody. He said, don't let me bump into anybody. I just want to go in and out. I ran into a fellow that I hadn't seen in 20 years. A man that I had, had uh, before been very invested in speaking the gospel. And I walked right past him and he called my name. And, and I, I came with this long conversation and just this openness. Just, I want to I wanna speak with you. I want to resume this relationship. We can expect the Lord to do these things. And let me just say this uh, in, in association with this. Evangelism is like prayer in this. The more we do it, the easier it becomes. The less we do it, the far more disinclined we are to share the gospel with people uh, around us. It's a habit to be learned and employed regularly. It will become much easier to do. Finally, Paul says, fulfill Timothy, your ministry. Timothy, don't quit. This is the same with every discipline in life, right? The person who's just starting off playing a musical instrument, very hard, difficult to do, difficult to make those sounds. I remember, you know, trying to master, I used to play trumpet and trying to master that embouchure. My neighbors calling my parents saying, who's torturing animals at your house? Um, and, but, you know, over time, it becomes, um, the, fr the fruit is seen over time. The worst thing that we can do is to quit. And so there's a gospel uh, virtue here in Paul's admonition to Timothy in not giving up. Just keep plotting. Keep plotting. Keep plotting. The fruit will come. It's like this in our prayer life. It's like this in our devotional life. It's like this in our evangelism. It's like this in our church. Just the Lord is saying this to Christ's church. Keep plotting. Keep going on. The devil wants us to stop. It's very clear to me. The Lord says, keep plotting, keep going on. How many years William Carey, the great Baptist missionary to India, labored, will ever see one convert? Years and years and years. And he saw no fruit. And Guinea said to, uh, 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 Carey said to a friend, I may not be able to do much. But one thing I can do, I can plod. I can just keep going. And Carrie's ministry in India had amazing, far-reaching, decades and decades and decades and centuries of fruit because he just refused to give up. Timothy, I know you want to stop. I know you want to throw in the towel. It looks so bleak. 
fulfill your ministry. Don't give up. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.